We thank you that in you our hope alone is found. And so we ask that you speak to us today and that you would strengthen us, that, Lord, that you would bring us to that place of renewal, that place of even submission for the first time in some cases. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself strong among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, a particular welcome to those who may be visiting it is our custom as a church to teach the Bible, and in doing so, um, we teach through the, the scriptures, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in order that we might understand the Lord's message in its context. Um, I always liken it unto allowing the Lord to finish speaking. Um, none of us like others to finish our sentences, especially when they're not going to say what we were going to say. And when we take the, the word of the Lord out of context, it's almost like we're trying to finish his sentences with things that he's not necessarily saying in the text. And so let's allow the Lord to finish speaking, hence us looking at um, Luke chapter 3. I commend to you the um, uh, YouTube... I wonder if we can dim these lights a bit, please, bro, at this end, just to make it a bit easier for peeps. Um, I'd come into you the, the YouTube um, overview of the book of Luke by the Bible Project. If you're unfamiliar with it, you can just type in on YouTube the Bible Project Luke. It's in two parts, and it's very helpful in the way in which it just walks you through the fundamental structure and overview of the book. And so... Um, we're not doing anything new or different to that. And as you see today, we're focusing on Jesus' baptism and the genealogy. So, reading from the ESV, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, for those of you who have been here since the series started, you will remember me talking about the way in which Luke is very intentional about establishing the facts of what he's saying. And how, oh, how we need that today. We all know what it's like to have to go through two-factor authentication to confirm the fact that it is us that's trying to access our email or whatever platform we're on because truth and facts are very disposable in our day and age. It's a bit like um, having to go to the doctors and having to give your, your name, your date of birth, and your national insurance number. There's a way in which Luke gives us his own triangulation of truth as to how are we establishing this to be fact. People, including their position, status, or heritage, the place of, of relevance, 
and the period which is often linked to a person's reign or the, the span of their duty. And, and this is one means by which Luke triangulates his facts. And we see at the beginning here that he goes all out to make it very clear as to the precise period in which these events took place. How many people are referenced here? We've got Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, and Ananias and Caiaphas. He's given you a, a, a full royal flush of individuals. And the, the interesting thing is that with every name that's added, it narrows the time frame even further. Because for all of them to be in active service at the same time can only happen within a very small defined period. And so here we see the diligence and thoroughness in Luke's approach in presenting to us the gospel. And be encouraged that as we go through the gospel, that diligence and that intentionality does not wane. He doesn't let up on that. And so when we're reading of miracles, it's not because he's just having a fanciful idea and he's just heard something that was like, oh, that sounds really good, I'll put it in the gospel. No, 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 no. He's communicating truth and facts continuously throughout. And so at this point, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's marking the moment. Now, interestingly, this verse, uh, along with chapter 2, verse 1, has been used by critics and naysayers to try and rubbish the Bible and rubbish Luke's gospel. They try to challenge his record of, of the history of that time. In Luke 2, verse 1, he speaks about Quirinius being the governor of Syria. Here in chapter 3, we see him mention Pontius Pilate and Lysanias. And these are individuals who, by historians, have been in dispute previously. Up until a certain point, they were like, now nah, you see Luke's gospel, it's, not, it's, it's obviously you know, a work by somebody who came along later and, and are now attributing it to this individual called Luke because they've not got the names right. They've not got the facts and figures correct. When it comes to Quirinius, they say that Luke's record did not align with the Jewish historian Josephus. Now, Josephus was, was a, a, a historian um, around the time of Christ, within the same generation, and he wasn't a follower of Christ. He was um, Jewish by, by creed, and um, so he had no allegiance to Christ, but he endeavored to be a, a, a faithful and accurate his, historian. And so he records this individual Quirinius at a later time in history, not much later, but later than Luke has positioned him. And so they've said, ah, oh, you see, Luke doesn't agree with, with Josephus, and so he's obviously got it wrong. Ah, oh, you can't really trust those scriptures, can you? But in the, 
in the 19th century, inscriptions and coins were found dating Quirinius as ruler of Syria up until the death of Herod the Great, just as Luke recorded. See, when we say that the, the, the Bible is inspired by God, we're saying that the substance of it fundamentally can't be wrong. Otherwise, how can it be inspired by God? How does God get it wrong? And so these are the ways that people seek to undermine the authority of Scripture. And yet archaeology, a means by which you're able to unearth actual data from the period. Not somebody chatting how many thousands of years later. Oh yeah, I don't reckon that Luke got it right. And then they unearthed the artifacts, the objects from the period. And Luke got it right. Pontius Pilate, up until the 1960s, you know, this last century, until the 1960s, historians were not sure if Pontius Pilate even existed. Now, you would think that's quite a, a, a shaky situation because Pontius Pilate's the one who committed Jesus to death. I find no fault in this man. I wash my hands. Do, like, what do you want me to do? Who do you want? Who said all of that? Pontius Pilate, you know. And they're trying to carry on like he, they, he, the Gospels presented him as some kind of fictitious character until 1961. <laughs> Look at the Lord. Italian archaeologists uncovered this limestone block on the face is a huge inscription, which is part of a larger dedication to who? Tiberius Caesar. Notice the triangulation at the beginning. Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar ruling Rome at the time. Dedication to Tiberius Caesar, which clearly says that it was from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Listen, this Lysanias individual, this was, a, was, this was a really techie one. It was technical because they have record of a Lysanias that lived 40 BC. This was before John the Baptist was even born. So how could he have been a ruler at the time so many years before John the Baptist was born? They said... Lysenius was the ruler of a small realm on the western slopes of Mount Hermon, attested to by the Jewish writer Josephus. Josephus again, you know. We'll come back to my man. And in coins from circa 40 BC, so it was attested to by Josephus and coins. So there's, there's a certain amount of evidence now saying, actually, Josephus's history, the coins that they found, suggest that this Lysenius brother was not around. But there is also mention of a Lysanias dated 29 AD in the Gospel of Luke. And so, hence the debate. In 1912, um, Raphael Savinac, um, who, is, uh, who was in Jerusalem, relates to a second inscription found in the region of Abilene, which is, if you look back at verse 1, you'll see that's the area in which Lysanias was 
the Tetrarch, same place, and this is the second inscription that's been found, confirming a younger Lysanias as Tetrarch of the region, just as Luke recorded. Raphael's conclusion, some scholars have suggested that Lysanias, king of the Iturians, that's the older Lysanias, was ancestor of a Lysanias who was tetrarch only of Abilene. And so basically you had older Lysanias and younger Lysanias. Terms I guess we're quite familiar with today. Maybe there was a younger, younger Lysanias that came later. We don't, not really. But nonetheless, the fact that people have similar names within their heritage is not uncommon. And so it's clear that there were two, and the two inscriptions that were found in the area confirm that there was a Lysanias who was Tetrarch of Abilene at that time. You see, I think it was Spurgeon who said, the word of God is like a metal anvil. That's one of those things that a, a shoemaker, a, a, somebody who, who does horseshoes, he'll put it on the, on the metal anvil and he will bang the horseshoe into shape. And this anvil is, is like a giant piece of iron that it just, it's immovable. And he said, the word of God is like a giant anvil whom all the critics will come and bang and beat to no avail. People would rather give Josephus credit, even though he's been found to be wrong in the numerous areas, inaccurately wrong, not completely off piece, but inaccurate. They'd rather give Josephus credit rather than Luke, and bearing in mind that Luke's gospel didn't exist in isolation, but you had the other biographies of Matthew, Mark, and John that also corroborated his testimony. And it goes to show the, the bias within man's heart. We look for excuses to deny God. And yet we see that this is addressed even um, in our chapter today. Be confident in the scriptures. Anything we know about history, we receive by faith. We weren't there. And so all we can do is look at the evidence to evaluate that which is true beyond reasonable doubt. And when we see the way in which the evidence agrees with the scripture, now notice what I said. It's not that the scriptures agree with the evidence because that would make the evidence of higher authority than the scripture. The scripture is divine. And so we expect the evidence to agree with it as it does. We can have confidence, we can stand firm on, on the word of God. That God's word is true. And he truly has revealed himself. Amen. So, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod and Tetrarch of Galilee and Sorry, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, 
and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias, Annas and Kephira. Well, today is going to be a day for names, you know. <laughs> I better just take my time. Annas and Caiaphas. Now, interestingly, Annas was the outgoing high priest and Caiaphas the incoming high priest. But Annas was the high priest who basically pulled the strings in the background. And so he was like that leader that never left. He stepped down from public display, but he was always in the background um, pulling the strings. And we see Luke, even in this reference, making a political comment that he was aware that this was the situation, even though Caiaphas was the face, Annas was at work behind. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance. This was also known as the baptism of John. And in this, we see John practicing that which was actually common in Israel. So when you look back throughout the history of the people, when those who were non-Jews were, were joining the Israelite nation to become a part of the, 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 the people and to adopt Judaism as their belief and their creed, they would um, go through what they would call washing, which is uh, another term that is used um, in place of baptism. And so these individuals, non-Jews, joining the Jewish belief, the, the technical term for that were proselytes, they were people who would go through a form of baptism in order to rec be recognized as part of Judaism. So there's a level at which John is reinstituting that, but he's doing this for the people. Because the people are in apostasy, they've forsaken the Lord, their religion is merely cultural, it's merely social, a bit like many Muslims today here in the UK. There are many Muslims who, by their own admission, they're not truly observant. It's, it's a heritage that they've adopted from their family, and it's more of a cultural reality for them than it is a conviction. Even among Christians, there are many for whom they call it nominalism. You kind of grew up going to church, and you know, you know the songs, and you know the stories, and, but there's no depth of conviction in the heart. And that conviction is to be characterized by a sense of repentance. And so John is uh, given a baptism of repentance. And the lifespan of this baptism is short-lived, as we'll see shortly. But let's understand what the purpose of baptism is. Because I believe we live in a period, in an era of church history, where we really got it twisted when it comes to baptism. We've not really grasped the essence of what baptism is meant to be. We're more concerned with the phrases used at the point of baptism than the true meaning of baptism. 
There's a level at which um, what is often regarded as uh, or called the altar call has taken the place of baptism because we've misunderstood what back, the significance and meaning of baptism. Are you baptized in Jesus' name or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And, well, actually, that's not the point of focus. Baptism in the New Testament was recognized to be a rite of passage. So um, you may have heard of the phrase bar mitzvah. And that's when uh, a Jewish child becomes a teenager. I think it's boys in particular, but I've heard of girls having bar mitzvahs. Uh, and um, they, they become a teenager, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an event or occasion that marks their transition to adulthood, if you like, and responsibility. Baptism is a rite of passage. It's an occasion that marks the following. The fact that a person identifies with the one into whom they are being baptized. It, it recognizes a submission of that person to the authority and the, the life of the one into whom they're being baptized. It, it marks a commitment, their allegiance, and their belonging amongst those who have done likewise. I'll give you a, a more modern example. A few years ago, there would, and it sometimes recirculates, there's an a, a email that you might see come round, or you sometimes see it posted on socials. Uh, be careful when you're driving, because if you see a car driving with its lights off, and you flash them, you could be the victim of a gang initiation. Now, this started in the States, this um, urban myth. And the idea is that what... Um, gangs would do in order to initiate people into the gang to, to kind of give them a rite of passage and say, all right, you want to be a part of the gang, this, this is the activity you have to participate in, is they would drive around. When somebody flashes their lights, they would cut the person up, pull them out the car, beat them up, and that was their way of proving that they were committed to this gang. Um, uh, another form of gang initiation is being, being jumped in when you kind of basically submit yourself to the gang to get beaten up by them. And if you take the beating and you're still um, committed, then you're now a part of the gang. These are all rites of passage, um, initiation acts, which by the end of individual is signifying their submission, commitment, allegiance, and belonging. When it comes to Christianity, baptism is exactly that for an individual who is professing faith in Christ. It is a rite of passage. It is an act of initiation by which the individual is identifying their submission to Jesus, their commitment to him, their allegiance to him and those who are his, their belonging amongst those who are Christians. And so it's not so much what name were you baptized in? But if you like, whose gang were you baptized into? 
couple of examples that help us see this in the, in the text. Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Some disciples. Oh, okay. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, notice, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Ah, that's the baptism we're looking at now, right? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the translators kind of failed us there, because where it says in, the Greek actually translates more commonly and um, better as into the name of the Lord Jesus. Just as the word, it's the same word into, uh, at, at, the top, at the bottom of verse 3 there, it's the same word into at the beginning of verse 3. And so, when John was baptizing, John was baptizing into Moses, into the law of Moses. John was baptizing them to say, the law is God's authority, is God's word, and that is what we should be observing. And so if you are serious about relationship with God, you should come and submit yourself. Declare your allegiance to the law. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10 too. The Apostle Paul speaking of Israel, it says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Again, we see that phrase, into. And this is what John was doing, was calling them back to observance of the law because they were lawless. They weren't interested. But in Christ, we get to... Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what should that word be? Ah, oh. into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go you therefore, this is the ASV, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, there's a sense in which even though John was calling them to a baptism of repentance, repent of your lawlessness, repent for forsaking the law of Moses and give your commitment to the law. His baptism was short-lived as we saw in Acts. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so now, as heirs of the new covenant, we are baptized into the maker of the new covenant, into relationship with him and his. 
allegiance to his way, to his standards, to his expectations. Now, John needed to call the people, as we go back to Luke chapter 3, in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This beautiful promise is shared. Every valley, every low place, every low time, every low mood, every low moment, every situation that's got you down shall be filled. And every mountain and hill that it feels like it's too high to get over, too hard to climb, it's beyond your reach, shall be made low. And the crooked shall be, you know what struck me about this? The crooked, it didn't say the crooked road. It didn't say the crooked place. The crooked, I said, yes, Lord, I'm crooked. I need to be made straight. Thank you, Jesus. The rough places, those tough times, shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What an amazing promise. I wonder if anyone could say amen in here today. What an amazing, every valley, every low place shall be filled. Come on, sister. Every mountain and hill beyond your reach shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough places, them hard times will be leveled off. Smooth, plain sailing. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God is good. This is his promise in Christ. And this is why he was calling them to repentance, that they might receive the promise. This is why the Lord calls us to repentance. It's not because he just wants to flex on us and show how mighty and powerful he is and how we're under his submission. It's because he loves us. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out from verse 7 to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't try and call on your heritage. Calling, oh, you know, my, my grand was a praying woman and she used to take me to church. All my family and all we've ever known is the gospel. Mm -hmm. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, there's an expectation that if we're going to genuinely be repentant that there would be something to show for that. 
Repentance is more than an intention. As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so the crowd asked him, they felt the sting of this. What, 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 what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Now I want you to notice carefully the things that John the Baptist puts his finger on. Notice. Whoever has two pieces of clothing, share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So be sharing, be generous, be kind, be considerate. You would think he'd be like, you know, and if you're a thief, stop stealing. If you're a liar, stop, stop your lyingness. But it's, it's something really simple. Like, share with others. Don't just be selfish. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Don't abuse your authority. Parents, don't abuse your authority. Teachers, employers, whatever, adults, over like, we so easily abuse our authority. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Contentment, you know. Repent of your greed. Old school, they used to say avarice, wanty, wanty. They say where I come from in Jamaica. Beggy, beggy. Your, your two red eye. Uh, mm. Be content. This is countercultural. Like everything you see in, in, in the socials, and it's all about success. Yeah, you got to get, you know what? And I noticed how they put the real secrets to success behind the paywall. <laughs> it's like even on the news feed, I look at Apple News and they have a really good article. Oh, how you can, you know, duck inheritance tax and make, make but you have to subscribe. <laughs> Be content. Don't take advantage of people just to get more money. Amen. Now, John, in the fashion of a true prophet, was not concerned to call them out. I mean, they asked him. Maybe they wished they hadn't after he, you know, put it on them. But he, facts is facts. Truth is truth. And as a prophet, that's all he was focused to declare. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, I mean, this guy is just telling it like it is. Surely he must be the Messiah, right? 
He must be the Savior. He may, surely he's the one. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, there's great expectation in Christ, but that expectation cuts both ways. There's great expectation that in Christ, when you submit as baptism represents, as you submit and trust in Jesus, that actually you are granted the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. Up to this point, the Holy Spirit had not come to live in, the, the Holy Spirit would just come upon the men of old, the women of old. And you'll read it in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah. Or the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. For a moment, for a purpose. But this promise is, you will be immersed continually in the Spirit of the Lord. Now, we won't get into all of the technicalities of Pentecost and baptism. With that. that will be another few weeks at this stage. But the promise is such that we are promised the presence of God with us and in us continually. And yet, there's also a promise of judgment. That's what it means by fire. When I was coming up, there was always a debate over this. Have you, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? <laughs> Jesus' name. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about that you're on, you're on fire for God and you're going to move mountains with the word of prayer. That's not what it's talking about. Those things are for us, but this isn't what that's talking about. Because we see how John elaborates. His winnowing fork, his winnowing, winnowing fork is like a, um, like a, uh, a hoe, a uh, garden implement, when I say that. Yeah? Um, and it's used to sift things. It's to sift things, yeah? So basically, you got a picture of the, 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 the wheat mill, and the wheat would come in, and it's got um, the actual kernels of wheat, and then all of the trashy parts. You know, like when you eat monkey nuts, yeah? And you want to get to the monkey nut in the shell, isn't it? But you've got to get rid of all of the trash around it before you get to... So, this is the picture that we're seeing here. The Lord wants to get to the kernel of the wheat. All of the trashy parts need to get sifted out, separated. And that is a picture of the kingdom, that actually the wheat and the chaff will grow together, but there will be a separation, and Jesus is the one to separate. And the wheat will be gathered into his barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. 
And so this expectation, if we expect great reward in, in the Lord, don't think that that doesn't also come with an expectation of retribution to those who are not in the Lord. And again, that's a message today that is being very diluted to the point where there isn't an urgency in evangelism because there's this sense that, well, everyone's going to get there in the end, aren't they? That's not what we see right here. There are wheat and there are chaff. And it is by the work of God that we are transformed and become weak. And so, hence the call to repent. There's this great promise, there's this great expectation, there's this great opportunity, but in order to access, you need to repent. The word repent is metanoia in the Greek, which means a change of mind. But it's actually more than a change of mind. It's the state of changing any or all of the elements comprising one's life. Attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors concerning the demands of God for right living. So it basically means to turn around from our own way, to agree with God, to have a change of heart, mind, and behavior. And hence, John saying, bring forth fruit of repentance. If you've genuinely had a change of heart, if you, if you definitely look at yourself differently and are able to agree with God that you are not right before him, then let that be reflected in our behavior. Sometimes repentance can feel like it eludes us. That we have great intentions that don't really result in fruit. That we have issues that we cycle around and around and around. One of the things that we're exhorted to do is to pray. Uh, we see in the book of Acts, there was a gentleman called Simon the Sorcerer. And he desired to buy the gift of God with money. And Peter said to him, may you and your money perish. And may the Lord grant you repentance. Sometimes repentance doesn't come easy. And we need to pray and ask the Lord to grant us a repentant heart. It's like when David said, create in me a clean heart. You create it in me, Lord. I don't even trust myself to try and perform that surgery. I need you to do it. But the outcome is tremendous. And here we see in the next verses why repentance is so necessary in their day. Luke 3.18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them. To all of the evil things. He locked up John in prison. So Herod was a wicked guy, which was highlighted by the fact that 
he took, he, he divorced his wife in order to take Herodias, his sister-in-law, from his brother to be his wife. You thought that them kind of things was just on like EastEnders and that, right? <laughs> like, we've got some monopoly on scandalous behavior. This is how, and, and the Herod family name was a, a, a dire one. Um, so you've got Herod Antipas, who is this Herod. You've got Herod Philip. It's, in fact, it's actually said that there were two Herod Philips. Um, and there's another brother as well, I forget his name. But their dad was Herod the Great, yeah? Herod the Great is the one who killed the babies at the thought that the king, there might be a king to usurp him. That wasn't a kind of one-off. He was known to be extremely paranoid. He killed those among his own family and his own court out of suspicion that they might seek to overthrow him. That's how paranoid he was. When he died, he ordered a whole batch of his um, attendants to be killed at the moment of his death. So that when they're all killed, there will be genuine mourning. <laughs> he knew no one was going to cry for him. So wicked and bad. This Her and so that was just the, the culture of the Herod household. And they were seated in authority over the Jews. And so, clearly, the need for repentance <clears throat> was evident. But as we go on now, it begs a question. Look at this, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized... Hold on a second. When Jesus was baptized... Huh? Scooby. Uh, now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, <coughs> Jesus was baptized. Why was Jesus baptized? If John was given the baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sin, does that suggest that Jesus had sin that he needed to repent of? Remember what we said baptism represents. Jesus said this in Matthew 3.15. John the Baptist said to him, well, I should not baptize you. Jesus said, no, let it be so, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And in being baptized, Jesus was affirming the law of Moses. He's like, yep, this baptism that you're conducting, calling people to repentance, it's not that I need to repent. But I'm co-signing the law of Moses. And so when I go, and go to get baptized into Moses, I'm saying that it's right and proper that everybody should be. He's also demonstrating his submission to the law, his commitment to fulfill the law, his allegiance to the people of the law, and his belonging among them. So it's not that he had committed sin. It's not that he had to repent of anything. But when we rightly understand what baptism is about, we see the significance of that moment. Jesus was co-signing the law. 
at the heart of the law was the Ten Commandments. And there's a level at which, when it comes to human morality, that still stands today. The Ten Commandments hold all of us bang to rights. Who hasn't lied? Ever. Who hasn't taken something that didn't belong to them? I mean, you might have been really intentional throughout your life as an adult, but I'm guaranteed there was a time at the, in, as a child when you went in the cookie jar and you shouldn't have done. And it's not to say, oh, you know, you're such a wicked and bad child, you, you took a cookie. No, it demonstrates our human nature. You don't need to teach a child to lie, right? You don't need to teach them to be deceitful. You don't need to teach them to be selfish. Because the law exposes us to ourselves like a mirror. We look with lust in our hearts. We have hatred, even if it's momentary. We go through these experiences. We covet. We're we're greedy for stuff that's not ours. We don't honor a mother and father. We don't put the Lord first. We make stuff our idols. See, these are all of the things that the law speaks to. It's very practical. It's very real. And yet Jesus demonstrated that the law was something that was necessary. And in his commitment to fulfill all righteousness, he fulfilled all righteousness, which included included submission to the law in particular. And this is how we know that he was able to stand before God, having been raised from the dead, because he fulfilled the entire expectation of the law. And so he didn't stay dead. So when all the people had been baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so, Jesus receives this heavenly cosign in this moment. The authentication, the validation. Two-factor. The Holy Spirit descends on him. Visibly, people could see it. This event as the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit descends on him. And the voice from heaven, my beloved son. In this moment, we see a picture of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, active at the same time. This is one of those texts that is extremely helpful when we wrestle with our understanding of the Godhead. There are those who profess that Jesus is the Father and that he is the Spirit. It's known as oneness theology or Unitarian theology or sometimes apostolic um, theology. Um, uh, Churches that subscribe to that are also known as, as, as apostolic churches. Um, some of them, but actually this moment makes it clear to us that there is one God who exists in three persons. 
It may be clear even though we don't fully understand it. But it's still clear. And then we come to the end of the chapter where we see this genealogy. And I'm going to read through it and just highlight three things as we conclude. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, note that phrase, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, who was the son of Cosan, the son of Elmadan, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, sorry, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Verse 30, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Milei, the son of Mina, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ani, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eba, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In this, we see a few key things. This, if you're keen-eyed, is different to the genealogy in Matthew. And there is reason and tension for that. So the genealogy in Matthew is said to be the genealogy of Joseph. Jesus' legal father. So you could say he was his adopted father or his stepfather. Nonetheless, he was his legal parent. And in those days, as an adoptive parent, the child that you bring into adoption becomes a full heir and inheritor of your estate, of your name. And so, in that sense, 
Jesus was being recognized legally through the genealogy of Matthew that he was a, a true heir of Joseph's lineage. Now, there's much in common, although there's differences, because Joseph and Mary, which is this um, genealogy, represents Mary's genealogy, were actually first cousins. Now, just think past that in our day and age, but they were first cousins, yeah? <laughs> different culture, different times. And, and I'll come back to that because you're going to be like, how can the Bible be advocating them kind of nastiness? We'll come back to that in a minute, just as a side note, yeah? This is Mary's genealogy. And in this, we see this. Um, Mary's lineage, like Joseph's, goes back to David, goes back to Abraham, and unlike the one in Matthew, it goes back to Adam. Matthew stops at Abraham. Matthew is just concerned with proving that actually Jesus is a, a true um, son of Israel. But through this, we recognize that Jesus is in part of Adam. He has human nature. And that's one of the mysteries of the divinity of Christ, that he is 100% human whilst also being 100% God at the same time without any disruption to either nature embodied in one person. And so, yes, he is a true heir to the, the throne of David. 2 Samuel 7, the throne that would be lasting forever, God said. He is the heir and he is the rightful one to be able to fulfill that. And yet also he is the one who's able to rightfully be declared the last Adam. If he had no part in humanity, he wouldn't be able to undo that which Adam done. And so this is what we see in the lineage. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Messianic King, who brings us God's blessing for all humanity, for all humanity, not just the Jews. Otherwise, I'm sure all of us would be excluded. We wouldn't qualify. But God in his goodness has sent Christ, who submitted himself to the law and fulfilled what we could not fulfill. Committed to the end. And under the, the curse of the law, paid the penalty for us. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could belong. And so the call to us is to repent and believe. And repent and believe is not just a one-time thing. It's supposed to be the ongoing posture of the believer's heart. That we re repent regularly. 
submitting continually. And through our committed submission, declaring the Lordship of Christ. Uh, let's stand. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.